Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. This podcast is brought to you by the Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program. Are you looking to experience a breakthrough in your team's sales? Have you tried sales training in the past, but were unable to make it stick? The Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program is a year-long engagement that combines sales and leadership training, a digital sales playbook, and a coaching and accountability process that will change your sales culture and drive sustained growth. Learn more at criteriaforsuccess.com. In June, we're talking about problem solving. Check out the blog for best practices, information, and advice for you and your team at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I'm excited to talk to today's guest. He's actually here in studio. In person. Yes. So our guest is the founder of The Sales House, an all-in-one sales education community for modern B2B sellers. He's the founder, author, speaker, and strategist at Zero Time Selling. I think we'd all like to spend zero time selling and still get results. <laughs> he is the author of books, including Zero Time Selling, 10 Essential Steps to Accelerate Every Company's Sales, and Amp Up Your Sales, Powerful Strategies That Move Customers to Make Fast, Favorable Decisions. He also hosts a podcast called Accelerate with Andy Paul. So as you might guess, based on the name of his show, our guest today is Andy Paul. Thank you so much for joining us today, <laughs> Thank Andy. you, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. So um, I just gave a long intro, but do you want to introduce yourself a bit to our listeners? Well, you, you did a pretty good job. Um, but yeah, I, I had a long, varied career in sales, been in sales for four decades. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they still have me. So, <laughs> but... Uh, Spent a lot of time, probably career roughly divided in half, half working for startups and various startups, tech startups primarily, uh, both an individual contributor and sales leadership roles. Started my own company in the year 2000. Fundamentally, I helped companies. One of the things that, that I really specialized in and was brought into companies to do was help sort of no brand name companies sell complex systems competing with large companies. Mm -hmm. So how do, when you have no track record, how do you, how do you compete and win? Definitely. And so it took that and started a company based around that, worked with a variety of small, mid-sized companies, helping them learn how to compete and mm -hmm. win. And then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, 2010, moved to New York from Southern California and said, what do I do? Yeah. And <laughs> at that point it was, well, I'd always sort of thought about writing a book, and sort of like a lot of consultants, I guess, would write books thinking sort of be calling cards for new business. Yeah. But in this case, actually, it sort of developed a following, and then, you know, I started blogging, and I started doing things backwards. I wrote a book first, where you're supposed to blog <laughs> and tweet and build your platform. Interesting method, but hey, it's working. I had no idea what I was doing. That's why I did it that way. So I knew nothing about blogging, nothing about social media at that point. And uh, so, yeah, so one thing sort of led to another, and now I've got this podcast with uh, 700 plus episodes that's very highly rated, uh, two Amazon best selling books, and large following online. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun because I've had to learn a whole new skill set in order Definitely. to do this. And which is, so when now we talk about the Sales House, this venture we started, which is really geared to how do we get sellers motivated to keep on learning? Because that's really the key to success, in my mind, is if you don't continue to evolve, the state of your knowledge, the state of your skills, your habits, you're just going to hit a, a brick wall and you know, not be able to improve at any point. Definitely. And too many people sort of reach that. And yeah. so we're trying to change the mindset within the industry to say, look, let's devote some period of our time every day. We're, we'll block out time on our calendar for prospecting, for follow-ups. Well, you need to be given permission, if mm -hmm. possible, by your team or give yourself permission to put in 15, 20 minutes every day 
I'm going to listen to this podcast, I'm going to read this book, I'm going to read this article, I'm going to go to the sales house, learn something new there. And that way, it's sort of like compounding interest, right? You're making an investment in yourself. Everything you learn builds on everything you've known before, and you just become more skilled and capable. Definitely. Um, I was listening to your show, and I heard you mention that book club concept mm -hmm. of, um, uh, it sounds like what you do is you have a monthly book that, that teams are expected right. to read, and you tell the managers or the VPs, you've got to let people spend 15, 20 minutes a day reading the book and journaling about it. And we see the same thing that it sounds like you hear from your clients the, the managers are thinking, no, I don't want to do anything that's going to keep my people out of the field. But the people aren't in the field. And or they're not on the phone, right? Yeah, or not on the phone. And their managers are thinking kind of two things at the same time a lot of times. We're hearing, oh, I've got to just free them up to spend as much time as possible on the field on the phone. Um, so God forbid I have them doing any sort of learning, any sort of thought, any sort of development. Um, but then on the other hand, they're like, why aren't my people selling? Why aren't they on the phone? <laughs> and it's this, this, this awful dichotomy. Um, and I think managers well, just don't really know. Well, it's a false dichotomy. Absolutely. And that's really what people and, and managers and sales leaders need to keep in mind. Even sellers themselves, that's a false dichotomy. Is, mm -hmm. is people have been pushing at this number for years that would reps spend roughly 30% or a third mm -hmm. of their time actually engaged with customers. And despite all the technology that's come into the space and the automation, that hasn't changed, yeah. and it's unlikely to change. So if you're in a, if you're a sales leader and you think the key to success is freeing up more time for your salespeople to sell, that's the, that's not the path you want to choose. What yeah. you need to do is say, what can I do to make my people more effective during the time they are selling? Absolutely. And so making investment in learning is going to have a greater return than saying, make five more calls. Yep. Or make ten more calls. I mean, that's like that's this false choice here. Is the learning is a better investment than those incremental calls? Absolutely. And so we're um, in June. We're talking about problem solving. Mm -hmm. That's our main theme of June. Um, and I think we're starting starting to touch on this. But can you talk a little bit more about the problems that you see in sales and sales training? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> oh, so. The rest of the episode, probably. <laughs> oh well, as I said, the rest of the day. Um, well, I mean, the the big. The problems in sales really haven't fundamentally changed, right? I mean, in some cases, they've been magnified by the introduction of some of the technology that's come into the space so that most sales teams are actually automating previously bad sales behaviors. Mm, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, just turn it into a process. <laughs> right, and amplifies the bad results. Yeah. And so there's, I think, one real problem in sales is, is yeah, too much focus on process that's disconnected from the buyer's vision of their process mm -hmm. and then consequently uh, not enough focus on what we need to actually do to win and I believe sales is first and foremost a service profession you're there to serve the needs of your buyers to help them be able to make a purchase decision I, I summarize it that you know your buyers have one goal in mind they want to quickly gather information to make a good decision with the least investment of time possible mm -hmm. and effort possible that's pretty simple. So that's your job as a salesperson. How can I serve my buyer to help them accomplish that? Definitely. And if you can do that, then you dramatically increase your odds of, of winning. But we seem to have gotten distracted by, mm -hmm. again, technologies, processes that aren't really aligned with the goal that the buyer is trying to achieve. Absolutely. And so one of the big disconnects, obviously, is, you know, and it's not caused by CRM systems to sort of magnified again by 
many CRM systems is this vision of sales as being this linear process that goes mm-hmm. from stage to stage to stage to stage and that you have clearly defined exit criteria for every stage, yada, yada, yada. And you mean buyers don't follow the process <laughs> yeah, that you've right. defined inside your organization? Well, I'm shocked. Well, the fact is everybody knows that. And yet yep. we continue to insist on on being driven by these linear processes. And Gartner came out with research last fall about buyer enablement where they have this famous diagram they call their spaghetti diagram, which shows the buyer's journey, which is this convoluted set of lines and squiggles on it that are not linear by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's deliberate, I would say deliberately not linear, but it's, it's definitely not linear, meaning that the buyers don't look at stages, they look at jobs they have to accomplish within mm-hmm. a, the buying process. But there's several things that sort of come into play. One is oftentimes for larger, more complex products, it's not something they do very often. So it's not documented. So they're learning this process, their own process. They're basically inventing it as it goes through how to Absolutely. buy this product and service. And nobody's training them in how to buy your product or service. Right. <laughs> Which sellers increasingly have to play a role in that. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, that's not never going to match up and align with your linear process. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to find a way to, to bridge that gap. And I think that that again, thinking, understanding what it is the buyer is trying to accomplish, which is again quickly gather information to make a good decision with least investment of time and effort. That should be how you inform everything you do as a sales team, because that's going to have an impact on the buyer's experience during their buying journey, and that has a big impact on the ultimate decision they make. It's not all just about features and benefits and value. They're hugely important, but that experience says a lot to the customer about what it's going to be like to work with your company. Definitely. Um, it's kind of funny, as you were talking about the spaghetti diagram and mm. the buyer journey just not aligning with the seller journey, I was thinking about an experience I had literally this morning. And we're moving our offices, and one of the features that we're going to be putting in our new office we're so excited about this, is a soundproof pod. Mm. And we're going to record the podcast there, so we're not going to have construction noises and elevator noises, hopefully disturbing the podcast. <laughs> well, that's uh, part of being in New York. Definitely. But it's also going to be a lot easier when we've got um, phone calls and video conferences and right. things. And so we're buying this pod. And so we do what is the typical, I think, current buyer journey. We start on the internet. We do some research. We ask people we know, oh, we saw that you have a pod. Can you tell us about it? Do you like it? Um, And we do that. And then we engage with the salesperson. And we're going down the salesperson's recommended journey, right? He wants us to come to their office and talk to them. He's going to bring us to see a pod. Literally this morning, Ariana and I were walking through Times Square. I don't recommend walking through Times Square on a weekday morning, but we happen to be doing it. And there is an exhibition of the pods that we're looking at. Mm. And so we completely bypass the steps that our salesperson wants us to take (laughs) because we demoed the pod right right there because we happened to see one. And this happens all the time. You're selling to somebody and you're walking them down your process and then they find something on the internet or Mm -hmm. they talk to a friend and they skip ahead a step or they ask you a question that you weren't ready to answer. Well, or they come back. I mean, the thing is, we know that in in decision-making, depending on the size of the deal you're selling, there are multiple stakeholders involved in this and sometimes stakeholders are late to the party. Yes. And so you have to repeat jobs or maybe they have inputs. You think, okay, we finalized what the spec's going to be for this and then... somebody blows it right up. (laughs) Right, and then John comes in who wasn't involved previously and he blows it all up. Well, you have to account for that. Yep. 
Definitely. I love that. And it's something that um, that we're really invested here. And, and I know it's just becoming a part of the conversation when it comes to um, selling and selling growth and, and helping people be better at selling. Mm-hmm. It's really all about meeting the buyer where they are and supporting them in that journey. And I liked what you said also about how buyers are really invested in um, determining whether you're a fit as quickly as possible and being able to make mm-hmm. that decision efficiently and quickly. And it's in your interest in selling to figure out if you're a fit or not a fit as quickly as possible. Sure. I'd rather get a fast no than a no that I've been chasing for nine months. And like, oh my goodness, I'm not going to get that. I would have loved to know that nine months ago. Well, and sometimes it's just a matter of asking. Absolutely. And this is this thing that I think is a mythology that, that too many sellers fall for, which is that, well, if the buyer's not interested in me, they're no longer going to take my phone calls or respond to my emails. And the fact is, in many cases, the buyers have no incentive to completely take somebody out of the Mm -hmm. equation because they need to be able to justify internally, look, we looked at all these options and we examined them carefully. And what you don't really understand is you're really fighting for second place, in which case, why you're there. And I mean, as a seller, that's always a position I want to put my competitors in. Yes. Put them in the box where they're (laughs) fighting for second and they don't know it. But it's equally dangerous if you're not spending enough time every time you interact with the buyer to say, okay, are we still qualified? Mm-hmm. Are they still qualified? Are we still qualified for them? Because this evolving scenario, relative, they could be respecifying what they're doing, and you have just to ask. Definitely, and if you can establish with the buyer a relationship of trust, and um, and if they can communicate with you, you know what it looks like for this project, you're not the fit. Um, and you maintain a professional and respectful and um, an appropriate relationship with them. Maybe the next time. They'll think of you and you might be a fit. And so Mm -hmm. um, chasing and trying to, you know, I'm in second place. No, I really, really, really want to win. Certainly you need to be competitive and you need to be striving. Um, But if it's not going to be a fit to be able to kind of bow out appropriately, devote your time in, you know, opportunities that are more fruitful, but then maintain relationship. Mm -hmm. Again, if appropriate, if it's a one-time sort of sale and there's no chance good to know. But a lot of times we think it's either I'm going to win all your business forever or I never talk to you again. And the world is a little more complicated than that. Yeah, you don't want to burn bridges. But certainly it's it's a skill that you can develop to be able to sense, okay, are we still in this or not? Definitely. And I use and give people various systems to do that. One is a simple call scoring system they can mm-hmm. use to evaluate whether they admit they're still in it and get a way to sort of objectively grade it. But just asking the customer oftentimes is most effective. Mm-hmm. And it can be as simple as, well, you know, how do, where do we stand right now? Yeah. And it seems a little obvious, but it works. It's amazing how many people don't ask those questions. I think sometimes they don't think of it, but sometimes they're afraid to ask a question and sure. they might not get a good response. Right. And so um, as a VP of sales, as a manager, one of the best things you can do is let your people know, I'd rather know that it's a no, than be lost in ambiguity and thinking that we're getting something we're not going to get. So I'd rather have you ask the more difficult question or the, you know, the, the real question than kind of just fuzzily tiptoe along, um, waiting for an eventual decision, you know, right. six months down the road. Yeah, the difficulty with that, though, is increasingly we're seeing in, in many companies is this set of sort of perverse incentives that are laid on sales managers to maintain a certain level of pipeline coverage. Yes. and there's a and, lot of fake in that pipeline. <laughs> well, of course, but what it does is it, by necessity, it, it, it consumes time from the salespeople mm-hmm. and everybody to sort of maintain the fiction that they've got this this pipeline. And so it's not a mystery why you know, companies that really focus on, hey, we need 5x pipeline coverage or 7x pipeline coverage, 
that their win rate is going to be the reciprocal of their coverage ratio. Absolutely. And yeah, if you've got a 5x pipeline coverage, you're going to win one out of five deals. That's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't but, I mean, it be nice you, if I you mean, could... but their whole company is built around this because yep. they think, well, we'll accept the low win rate because we can scale the top of the funnel somewhat infinitely. And the fact is nobody has infinite scalability at the top mm-hmm. of the funnel. So at some point, the roosters are going to come home to roost, uh, to use an old expression. <laughs> and you don't want to be in that scenario. You need to learn how to win. Definitely. And, and this is not an emphasis that I see in enough companies today. It's this emphasis on, okay, we're closing one out of five. How can I make that you know, one out of four? How can I make that one out of three? Uh, maybe even better, what I should do is, and I was talking about this at an address I keynoted a couple weeks ago, is determine what your win rate needs to be. Mm-hmm. And then learn how to engineer your process based on that and scale it based on that. And it's going to be a whole different set of behaviors. So if you want to win one out of every two deals, if you think that's a, a reasonable, then what's that mean in terms of top of funnel activities? What's it mean in terms of every step of your process, in terms of how you qualify, how you do discovery, and all that play into how do I achieve that win rate? And that's really where people should start. Start with what you want to win. Scale your process based on that. Definitely. We always tell people, the two stats that you want to look at. A lot of times people just look at number of opportunities. Mm. That's good, increasing your number of opportunities. Number of opportunities and close rate. And if you are working on both of those at the same time and not prioritizing just number of opportunities, you're going to see significantly greater results. And a lot of times people don't really focus on win rate really at all. They right. think we're just going to maintain what we've got. That's, like you said, that's terrible. Right, but a lot of companies, well, yeah, but a lot of companies, you know, they distinguish and differentiate between the close rate and the win rate. So, yeah, if they can get deals to closure, even mm-hmm. if they lose, they claim victory because, hey, we at least got the deal, so I'm going to make a decision. Yeah, okay. Win rate, definitely. <laughs> but win rate is really the thing that people need to focus on. Definitely. Um, so you touched on this a little bit in your intro, but I want to take a step back because obviously our listeners are people all along the journey um, mm-hmm. from sales to sales leaders. Um, so when did your passion for sales and business begin? Can you talk a little bit about the journey that you've been on? I know you mentioned it, but how'd you get started? Well, like a lot of people, just served by accident. Um, so yeah, graduated college, had no plan. Uh, I was working at my college campus after I graduated. Oh, I and, did that. And... <laughs> Actually, they offered me a job, a full-time job, and yeah, I started thinking, I'm not sure I want to work here, and spent more time at the placement center, and, and at that time, when I got started, the big companies, like yeah, I worked for a company called Burroughs, which is now Unisys, and IBM, and big computer companies, actively recruiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new college grads to put them into these training programs with the express intent of weeding out as, as many as they could and finally identifying the winners, and so I entered that. And I know just something about it that you know the pursuit, as you talked about, the things you learn. Maybe this is before we start recording. Is for me one of the great things about sales is just you meet all these interesting people, you learn all these interesting mm-hmm. things about companies and what companies do, and and yeah, I started sales as I've said this before. I basically had two assets. One is sort of an insatiable curiosity and a competitive streak a mile wide. Mm-hmm. So. To me, that was a great combination because I wanted to learn not just about my customers. I wanted to learn about sales itself. It's not to say that it was all all peachy the whole time because, yeah, there were certainly moments in the first six months to a year where I doubted whether this was really what I wanted to do. But, you know, I had sort of the good fortune of being 
managed and mentored by people who were giving me the freedom to learn how to sell in a way that aligned with who I was. And because mm-hmm. I was more of an introvert, uh, actually, after my first training class uh, at, at Burroughs, they sent back an evaluation, and that was a, one of the cut lines, oftentimes, where people were excused, if you will. And, <laughs> and my manager, the evaluation of me, and my manager sort of asked me after I came back from that class, he says, you know, how do you think it went? And I said, I thought it went fine. He said, well, that's interesting, because they thought we should fire you. Oh, nice. <laughs> And I said, oh. And the first thought as a 21-year-old was, okay, what am I going to tell my parents? But the second part was, you know, after I get fired after six weeks on the job, but their reason was I was too analytical. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny because I think there's this stereotype that analytical people are going to be bad at selling, but I don't, that, that's so far from the truth. I mean, it's funny. I, some of the top people I've ever seen at selling mm are able to process a lot of information, analytical stuff, so long as you can translate it to people who maybe aren't analytical. Mm-hmm. But that's so funny. Well, I'm not, well, I don't have a technical training at all. But, I mean, it, for me, it's it's the analytical part is, is sort of tied with, with being creative. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think selling is a very creative profession. Absolutely. And if you are too process-driven, if you have to be too scripted, if you not have that ability to be creative, then it really inhibits your ability to say, okay, I'm really hearing what the customer is saying. Mm-hmm. And you know, this situation is not identical to every other situation. Thus, the script doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do in this moment? And so this ability to be creative, to be deliberate, to be thoughtful, yeah, these it's not... <laughs> these are the real key attributes you need to have as a seller mm-hmm. and the ability to follow a script or a process. Yeah, okay, usefully. We all have processes. But yeah, it's really a, every time I talk with a uh, customer or a buyer or a client or have had throughout my career, you know, there's 7 billion different people in the world. It, by definition, it's a unique experience. It's not going to be replicated anywhere else. So Absolutely. my ability to be adaptive, adaptable and to, again, be creative, mm-hmm. really important. Especially, um, like you're saying, in a consultative selling space, which most B2B selling has some level of consultative Mm -hmm. selling. You know, if you don't have that creativity, if you don't have that script, you might do really well um, in a call center or in uh, in some sort of a process where people are just buying. Um, And there, that's a that's a perfectly good job for people who don't have that level. Yeah, Yeah, very transactional. But um, for people who have that creativity, to be able to sit in a meeting with somebody and literally create a solution that's never existed before, it's fun. It's really fun. Now, you always have to manage with your delivery organization that sure. they do not bite you when you sure. come back from there. Sure. But um, figuring out what are the appropriate bounds that you can create something within, you know, to take, oh, we did something similar with a different client. Um, we'd want to change this aspect of it. You need something else. You don't need this thing they needed. And build that solution together. That's a ton of fun for a lot of people. And that's where you're taking that creativity um, and really building something. And if you've got a buyer that's going to invest that time with you and figure that out, that's a really good buying signal that they're that's interested. That's a great buying signal. But, but you make a great point. Is, is What we do for a living has to be fulfilling, has to be fun, I mm-hmm. believe, to some degree. I mean, we're not talking about the laugh-out-loud fun, though it can be. <laughs> and I've had, I've had that. But, you know, a level of enjoyment of what you do. And, 
yeah, I think for people looking who are in sales and saying, well, yeah, it's not a lot of fun for me right now, is you then have to look at, okay, well, what's the situation you're in? It could mm-hmm. be the, the manager you work for that's, and increasingly see this, especially with, again, more technology coming into sales where we're still learning how to use it. And yes. there's a sort of blanket application of, well, we've got access to all this data, therefore the data must be good, mm-hmm. which is not that data is not good, but it's really clear we don't know how to use it. effectively yet to really impact outcomes and sales. We're going to learn, but it's only been a few years since we've had a lot of these tools. But what we're seeing is is many managers are saying, well, it's all about the metrics. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in this environment where it's like, you know, it's all about the metrics, it's all about the process, then yeah, maybe that's not the right environment. You need to find somebody who's not so worried about conformity, but is worried about how they can help you become the best version of yourself. And more than ever, you have to be the owner of you. You have to be the owner of your own development mm-hmm. as a salesperson, as a professional, uh, just as a human even. And no one else is going to look do that for you. you got some people to support you to greater or lesser degrees. But you really have to take ownership of that. And that, you know, if you find yourself sort of stuck and unhappy is, you know, look at yourself, look at the situation. Then say, okay, what are the environments that, that I think I could be more successful in? What do I need from a manager? What do I need from a culture I want to work in? And then you'll find maybe the fulfillment you're looking for. Definitely. And, you know, when you mentioned competitiveness, I think that's a part of it. If you're really competitive, if you want to win, it's not just I want to win certain opportunities, but I want to compete to be the best professional I can be, the best salesperson I can be. Oh, you're competing with um, yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. so... Uh, it's amazing how many people aren't reading business books. They aren't listening to business mm-hmm. podcasts. They books. aren't reading blogs or other things. They're not working on professionalizing their craft. And when we think about professionals in other fields, you know, uh, it's a cliche to go to athletics, but you don't become a professional athlete and then stop practicing. No, but even <laughs> even you know, business professions, lawyers, doctors, yeah. all have continuing education Absolutely. requirements. Teachers have continuing education requirements that you know that are mandated in California. It's for lawyers, it's twenty five hours a year. I think it's uh, mm-hmm. forty five every two years in New York, something like that. CPAs. So people that we want to be perceived to be equals to, which is yeah. one of the things in sales. Sales is oftentimes, well, you know, we've got this bad image of sellers and we we're just as skilled and professional as lawyers, yeah, blah, blah, blah. True. Well, then show it. Absolutely. Right? I mean, because one of the reasons you're perhaps not perceived very well is you haven't continued to advance your knowledge of the art and craft of selling or how customers make decisions or all this <laughs> field of knowledge that's out there that can relate to what you're doing that's so widely and easily available, podcast videos, in a way that never was before. It's amazing how much is out there now. I think one of the things that's hard for the people who who do want to learn and develop is just curating where you can get those sources and sort of have trusted places you can go where you know there's going to be valuable information and insights to learn from. That's um, a big advantage uh, as you're looking to maximize the value of the time that you can invest. Yeah, well, I think that, and that is one of the challenges. So I think that is discouraging to some people that there's actually too much yeah. information there's out 10, there. There's 10,000 blogs out there about every topic that you might want to well, look into. Well, sales itself, right? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, there's, there's a responsibility to be develop some level of discernment uh, as an individual to say, yeah, this is, this is something that's speaking to me. And, but if you find that and you find that if you apply, not just listen, but you apply the lessons and they work for you, then you know, either 
seek out additional people that are sort of like that or you know try something new but yeah it's not a matter of just consuming consume it practice it yes see if you can put it to work and then see if again if you trust the advice going forward definitely because it's it's so easy on the internet is it's everybody can have a microphone everybody can have a megaphone just like we do today <laughs> just like we do today and i actually it's funny i had guests yesterday on on my podcast i was recording and a couple younger sales leaders uh real hot shots very in a good way um and you know they had a question for me which is you know what do you what do you do about all the people out there who have megaphones and really don't know what they're talking about Mm -hmm. and there's not much you can do i mean as individuals you just have to sort of buyer beware Mm -hmm. but you know do look at track records, see what people have accomplished in their lives, see if they've actually sold. I mean, it's, it's, there's certain things you can do just due diligence wise that you do for anything. So I would urge people don't take anything at face value without doing a little research into the the source. Absolutely. I think one of the skills that is going to become um, an important factor for everybody in every profession uh, as as we continue with more content available and more information available of varying levels of quality, discernment Mm -hmm. is going to be a key skill that we need to be teaching kids Mm -hmm. and professionals need to be developing, um, you know, not to get into like politics and other things, but you know, when it comes to news and you're seeing it and you know, if it's all over Facebook, what is worth looking at, what is appropriate to share and what is fake and to Mm -hmm. be able to tell. And then it gets into, you know, professional training. Anybody can write a blog post and say, Mm -hmm. here are the five steps that Mm -hmm. you must follow is it worth it or is it not? And so knowing what to what to practice. And I want to reinforce something else that you said a few minutes ago sure. because it's so important. You said you need to apply what you're listening to. Um, I definitely am somebody who doesn't always do this. I listen to a ton of podcasts. I love podcasts. And you're listening. You're like, oh, that's a great idea. That's another great idea. That's another great idea. And then you move on to the next thing mm-hmm. and you never apply anything that you learn. And so it's better to consume less content and apply the content that you're consuming than to consume more and more and more content and more and more and more ideas and never actually change your behavior. Well, I think also, though, to to be a little, to add to that, is, is to be more deliberate about how you consume. And so uh, what we just released as part of the sales house is what I call a sales growth planner and journal. And so mm-hmm. it's a 12-month doc, uh, book, if you will. It is a book. And in it, you create your plan for the next 12 months, your sales plan, you create a learning plan then that says, okay, in order to hit my numbers, I need to learn these things mm-hmm. and improve these skills. And then most pages taken up with a journal. It's a weekly journal. But we developed a really cool little system to make it very easy to track what you consumed content-wise and the one or two key takeaways for that. And yeah. this is what people need to get in the habit of doing is I listen to a podcast. Okay, what are, what's the one key takeaway or the two key takeaways? Because mm-hmm. If you listen to a lot, uh, to your point, you're going to forget as soon as you get past it. Well, and you listen, you're on the train or you're washing dishes or something and your hands aren't available to take notes. Right. So when you finish, you can remember the one or two things. You don't want to take copious notes because I think, again, you pull one or two nuggets out of everything you consume, Mm -hmm. write it down, you get it. And that's, we've made it a physical book so people can go back and review and say, okay, all right, yeah, I remember that. Okay, I want to try that. Absolutely. And, And you need to do that in your life, whether you want to get our growth planner or get a, some other you know, notebook and just record in a notebook, record the one or two things and write it down because then it starts having some meaning. You know, when you journal things, we all know from a learning perspective that that's how you start integrating the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's the reason we consume is we want to pick up one or two bits of knowledge. Even if you read a book, same thing. Definitely. 
All right. So I recently discovered your podcast. So um, Laura found you um, to be a guest on the show. And so when I knew I'd be talking to you, I did some research. I found your podcast. I listened to a few episodes. Um, Definitely recommend to all of our listeners, you should subscribe to Accelerate with Andy Paul. You're talking to the same people we're talking to. Mm. Um, We've had actually some of the same guests. Mm -hmm. And um, you have had over 700 episodes. You make us look like little baby podcasts. (laughs) I think we're on episode 157 here. But can you tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and um, your mission there? Yeah, I mean, the mission was, initially the mission was, is to uh, expose non-tech audiences to sort of the latest things that were happening in sales. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of the innovation was coming out of the tech business on sales and new sales tools and so on. But it's really morphed over time, as a lot of things do. do. As they do. And we're just trying to be a good source of, I don't say truth, but sort of truth about what's happening in sales. Mm -hmm. And so have a little bit of reputation of not suffering fools gladly on the show. (laughs) And, and that's somewhat deliberate just because they're, yeah, I have the benefit of having been in sales for a long time, being very analytical as we talked about before. And so I have a, you know, my BS filter is pretty highly developed. And so I just want to, yeah, try to bring out some, let's say some truths, uh, truth might be too strong a word, but but you know, give people insights into what's happening from a technology standpoint. What what still we still need to be doing from just a basic sales process from a human standpoint. You know, increasingly, we're focusing on this aspect of it because there's a temptation to be seduced by the technology and forget mm-hmm. that every time you interact with another person, you are actually interacting with a person, not a persona. Yes, and you have to you have to develop your human skills as well as your technological skills and your other sales skills. And so um, you're just trying to be a venue for that type of conversation that, that gives people perhaps greater insight than they'll get otherwise. And, um, yeah, the audience seems to like it. Definitely. Um, uh, one of the lessons I li- or the episodes I listened to was with uh, Juliana Stan Campiano, mm-hmm. I think is her last mm-hmm. name, and highly recommend that one to our listeners as maybe an entry. You got into some of those same topics about um, you know people selling to people and having the people skills mm-hmm. is such an important skill set to be um, developing as professionals, and I think that is going to be a real. Um, Thing that we'll notice in the coming years uh, as a distinguishing factor between people who can be successful, who have those basic people skills and understand that they're people selling to other people. Increasing, um, increasingly so. And there's, yeah. you know, there's a body of research that, that's being con- created as we speak really about, okay, how do we survive in a world of AI mm-hmm. and machine learning that can take over certain tasks that we do? And the general consensus of at least in some some researchers, but is that actually, yeah, one of the real distinguishing, uh, to your point, is differentiating skills that we can develop is to become more human. Yeah. And people say, okay, well, what, what does that mean to become more human? Well, it's, it's you know, there's sort of some common human behaviors that, uh, you know, I've summarized in a little acronym I call BALD, B-A-L-D. Nice. And so the BALD formula, which is, I think are the four core sort of communication relationship skills that if you master, then your ability to uh, survive, thrive, succeed in the world as a seller, as a human being, are improved. And so BLD, so B is just be human. So, you know, demonstrate some of the human <laughs> characteristics of curiosity and empathy and mm-hmm. so on that 
and engagement. You know, if you're talking to somebody, are you really focused on them or are you distracted by your screens, for instance, right? <laughs> and which is a newer behavior, but one that's, that's yeah, it's pervasive. It's in just like five years. It's amazing how even when smartphones first came out, it was rude to have them on the table while you're eating food with people. Mm. And now you will see four people sitting around a table, all of them with their phones, phones. in front of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still think that's pretty obnoxious. Not just on the table, in, their, in, their, in their hands. Yeah, yeah. I so noticed that. They've done research that shows, and I'm a bad example because my phone is beside me, but um, just having your phone face up beside you changes the kind of conversation you have, even if you're not actually engaged with it. Sure. Um, knowing that it might have a notification changes the way you approach the conversation. Your yes. It actually decreases your level. Oh, of yeah, yeah. I, so I, I interrupted, but well, it's that's okay. so well, incredibly it's, it's great, important. Right, but it is a great point. As, as I was giving a workshop to a client a couple of years ago, about, and they had about 100 people inside sales team, and, and I noticed that couple people in the audience just weren't paying attention because they're on their phones. Mm-hmm. So I stopped. I said, okay, I want to take a survey. Is You guys are all inside sellers. Raise your hands if you keep your phone on your desk when you're making calls. And 100% raise yep. their hands. And I said, raise your hands if you look at the screen. I mean, they're keeping the screen face up. If you get a push notification or something while you're on the call with a customer. Same 100% raise their hands. Mm-hmm. And I went to chapter first about, because I've been doing some research on this topic about our inability to multitask as yes. human beings, we're just incapable of doing it. And these types of interruptions actually interrupt the flow to mm-hmm. the degree it could take 30 seconds to a minute to resync with the conversation. And I said, You think the buyer doesn't notice this? Yes. I mean, you've, you've invested <laughs> all this time and money to develop this prospect. And the first opportunity you get, you get distracted by somebody updating their Facebook status. Um, <laughs> and the example I, I gave is, uh, you know, I asked, you know, who was in a serious relationship or married or whatever. And I said, I don't know about you, but when I'm on the phone with my wife. She knows the instant I start looking at my computer. Oh, yes. I mean, and as subtle as I think I am. So if you think, <laughs> if you think your buyers or your prospects don't know. They know. They know in a heartbeat. I know when I talk to people on the phone when they're not paying attention. So, yeah. Be so, human. Anyway, so, be human is one. So, A, ask great questions. L, listen slowly. D, deliver value. So, it seems very basic, but, yeah, you do want to be human with people. This is how you begin to connect with them in a way that you need to be able to engage their interest. Or how do you make yourself interesting is by being interested in other people. You do that by asking great questions. You really start developing empathy by how you listen to people. Absolutely. And so listening slowly is a key. And and so often now, especially if we're in a more scripted selling environment, really just thinking about the next question we're going to yes, answer. and not Ask, listening at me, all. Not listening at all. And because you don't have to listen because you've got the next question. Mm-hmm. And so you're not really thinking about the answer because you don't excuse me, you don't really care about the answer because you've got your next question already lined up. And what happens is they're telling you something that means you should not ask that next question. Instead, you should ask a completely different question. And you ask it and they're thinking, didn't you hear anything I just said? And that they don't trust you. They know that you're following a script. And that's just the most awful experience for the buyer. And you can hear it when you listen to recorded calls. You can hear Mm -hmm. this all the time. Is There'll be a pause. Somebody will ask a question. There'll be a pause while they listen to the response. The response finishes. There'll be another pause because they're taking a note and they're going to the next question. Mm-hmm. And instead of the customer left the door open just a little bit, instead of kicking them on the door to say, okay, let's follow that trail, 
no. So listening slowly, and, and it's, it is a little bit of a skill. And so really, what I talk about with people, and because especially uh, SDRs, inside sellers, is you actually have to take a physical pause mm-hmm. after you hear an answer. And just think. You know, it could be half a second. It could be, you know, we think very quickly. We don't have to take five, ten seconds. But you, you take a pause. You build a pause into how you listen. Mm-hmm. And, again, it's really the key to developing empathy for people because you have to understand their situation in order to do that or develop compassion for them. And then deliver value is just, are you worth their time? Mm-hmm. So there's a reason you had this interaction. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, right? So what was the reason? And the reason, hopefully, was to give them something of value. Whether it's a question, insights, context, testimonial, whatever the plan is that you have, to give them something of value that made you worth their time. The customers, uh, subcon- we all do this, not just our buyers, but subconsciously we're calculating an ROI on the time we just invested with somebody. Absolutely. And so if you're not worth their time, if you're not living up to your end of the bargain, which is, hey, I'm going to give you some of my time, what are you going to give me in return? You stop getting time. Definitely. And as we were talking about earlier, um, you know, it's you should be adding value even if you're not going to be a fit. And it's a huge value to that buyer if you're not a fit and you can determine it in that conversation mm-hmm. and stop wasting their time. Yeah, you know, if absolutely. I've set aside an hour to meet with you and you can determine in the first 20 minutes that, you know what, it's not a fit and you give me those 40 minutes back. I like you a lot because there's a lot of other things I can be doing in those 40 minutes. But if you're following your script, I've got to keep asking these questions. I know you're not a fit. Well, yeah, but here's the problem that Pete, that we get into in sales, and and this is it is a problem is that we train sellers. This is a big problem with training. We train sellers to take any sign of disinterest as an objection. Yep, and work around it. And so it. we have to handle this objection. And, and I've written about this recently because I have a daily email that goes out to thousands of, of sales sellers and sales leaders. And I've written about it is, is that, you know, it's an expression of fact. It's not mm-hmm. when somebody says, look, we're just not interested right now. Sure. There have been instances we've sold people and they've come around and so on. But I'm a business owner. When I get approached by a seller and I say, look, I'm just not interested. I'm not saying sell me harder. <laughs> I'm saying stop. I'm saying stop. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe there'll be another time. I'm interested, but not now. Mm-hmm. And, but I, when I first wrote about this topic of what to do when the customer says they're not interested, it was about five years or so ago. Mm-hmm. Posted a blog and had a bunch of people just go off on me. It's like, <laughs> no, when they say they're not interested, we double down. We blah, 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 blah. It's like, <laughs> really? You're going to waste your time doing that? Yeah. Don't you want to go to and talk to people <laughs> who are interested? And actually sell people who are in the moment that now they need to buy and you're the solution for them. Instead, you're chasing, you're beating down doors, you're convincing people, changing their mind. That's exhausting. Well, it doesn't work ultimately. Yes. And so and that drives that one in five close ratio because there's four people who told you they weren't interested right. months ago and you kept chasing them. So I, I learned this from a, one of my first bosses because as not this, you know, persistence of that type. But, mm-hmm. but he's, yeah, basically said, look, it's a big world out there. Go find somebody who is interested. Yep, lots of fish in the sea. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, I want to make sure we don't forget to talk about your latest book. Mm-hmm. So you've written a couple of books, including uh, your latest one. It's called Amp Up Your Sales, Powerful Strategies That Move Customers to yes. Make Fast, Favorable Decisions. Can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write the book and the key messages in there? <sighs> well, it, it's really about being human, yeah. right? It's, it's about what are the things you can do as an individual to control the outcome of 
of an opportunity that you're working on. And so throughout the book, it's, it's very consistent about looking deeply at some of the science behind decision-making, behind influence, behind uh, you know, how we connect and engage with other people to say, look, there are things we can control. You know, we might want to think, yeah, we can control product, we can control pricing, we can control so on, various aspects of it. But there are things we can control that are, we make the difference ultimately between winning and losing. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to really dive deep into what some of those were. And, uh, you know, one example that I've been spending time talking to other people about recently is the extent to which we we don't plan what happens in a sales interaction. And that we think, you know, somebody has written an article about account planning and getting an agreement from the customer on what the account plan should be, which are all desirable. Yeah. But it was what they're talking about was at such a superficial level mm-hmm. that was almost made it meaningless. Mm-hmm. And an example I give in the book is that you know, taking a cue from David Allen who had written this great book called Getting Things Done. So about yes, personal productivity. Right. That book. So he he makes reference to is when you're thinking about getting things done is what the next very next physical action is that mm-hmm. needs to be done. Well, you need to use that same thought process when you're planning what you're going to do in sales. And so the example Alan gives in his book is you could put on your to-do list, change the light bulb in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And you think that's one step and you put that on your... But in actuality, I think he makes it eight steps. Yeah, you because have to buy a light bulb. You have to know what light bulb to buy. Well, you have to know what light bulb to buy. To buy first, right? In order to do that, you have to go to the garage, get your ladder, bring the ladder out, Look go to the hallway, light bulb check the light bulb. Yeah, go to the store, buy the light bulb. So there's sort of these eight steps. Well, same thing is true in sales. Absolutely. You can say, hey, I want to follow up with this lead. Well, that's not a, an action item itself. And I talk about an amp up your sales. Actually, find that's actually 24 steps. Yes. So when you're planning what you have to do, you're only part of the reason I think people underperform is they just don't understand the magnitude of the tasks they have to accomplish and what they need to do to be prepared to have a meaningful interaction with the buyer. It takes more time than you think. It takes yes. more deliberate thought than you think. And so I use that as an example early about just, you know, selling is a deliberate act. Yes. And it's not, we, we feel freed by having a process because I just have to show up and do that. Yeah, that's not the way it works, right? And you can, <laughs> you can do that, but you're not going to be very successful. Mm-hmm. But if you really understand what the details are behind it, um, then it's really becomes sort of opens the, your eyes in a way that perhaps it hadn't before and opens the door for you. So that's just one example about just helping people really understand what it is they're trying to do. And I think yes. people have to be, as a seller, you have to have this unambiguous understanding of what your job is. And, um, you know, I mentioned it before, is, you know, our, this is what the buyer's trying to do, is quickly gather information, make a good decision with the least investment of time and effort possible. Our job is to help them do that. You know, Jeff Bezos, and I quote him in the book, you know, says that about Amazon, said, you know, we don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help people make purchase decisions. Same thing in sales. Nothing good happens until somebody buys something. Absolutely. That's our job. Nothing yeah. else. Yeah. You could sell till you're blue in the face, but until somebody buys, <laughs> you're not right. going to be making so much money. So the book is really focused around how do you, ultimately, how do you win? And, you know, what are the steps you need to take and things to be mindful about in your selling process, your individual selling process, that can shape your ability to win. And speaking of Amazon, I think people can find your book on Amazon. 
They can find, yeah, book on Amazon. Or uh, anywhere else anywhere, books are anywhere sold. Anywhere books are sold, yeah. All right. Yeah. Highly recommended. So speaking of books, you talked about getting things done. But what are your um, any of your other favorite sales or business growth related books that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, we talked about one earlier that, that I think people, just from a future standpoint, people should read, which is called Humans Are Underrated by yep. Jeffrey Colvin. And great book about the impact on the economy and employment from AI and other technologies, emerging technologies. And it's, it should be an eye-opener for people if they read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shouldn't be scary because it's actually, as I said, the, the prescription is the ability to become more human, which is right in our wheelhouse. If anybody can become more human, it should be us, not the machines. Yeah, I bought that book, and it is sitting in a pile of books I need to read on my <laughs> table. Maybe I need to pull it up closer to the top. And I think that's a good one. I, yeah, the others that I've really enjoyed in the last year, a book by Eric Barker called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. I'm talking about the science of success and saying basically everything you know about success is mostly wrong and also a very eye-opening book because it's it you know certain myths that we all live by relative to performance personal performance personal productivity and yeah it does a good job of sort of addressing some of those and shattering some of those myths in a way that's that's very illuminating um, nice. Yeah, that's, those are examples. I, I have that one. Those are good ones on the list. We'll include those in the show notes for Thank today's you. show. All right. So here at CFS, we talk a lot about sales playbooks. We're a sure. sales playbook company. And we are always looking for useful tips that managers, CEOs, or salespeople can share in their playbooks. So what's mm. one actionable tip that you would recommend that our listeners include in their sales playbooks? Well, I think for, for leaders, this is a topic I've been talking more about recently, is that they're not spending enough time developing their people. So it's an old adage that you're only as successful as the people that work for you. And I don't think people have forgotten that, or sales leaders have forgotten that, but I think they've sort of lost the plot in terms of how they go about doing it. And we're seeing more and more sales managers say, okay, when I, I'm sort of dividing my time between managing my 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 team and coaching my team mm-hmm. but the coaching falls purely under the the heading of opportunity coaching absolutely and so i want managers to think about their time really being divided uh, sort of differently and which is that they've got managing coaching and then mentoring mm-hmm. and you know there's a debate some people have about whether managers can be mentors but i think they can be and absolutely should be but it's about saying, okay, yeah, I need to manage my organization. I need to build my capacity. We need to hire the right people. We need to set up our processes. We need to train people. That's managing. Yeah, we need to coach opportunities. That's great. But I also need to invest time to develop people as individuals. How do I help them become the best version of themselves? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen through opportunity coaching. It happens through what do they understand what they're concerned about, what they're trying to achieve in their lives. And there's a very different way of uh, of going through a process of talking to somebody and then a mentoring conversation than a deal coaching than managing. So I really encourage people to uh, you know, look at that. And a great book, another book that people should, should buy and read, which even though it has coaching in the title, it really is more about developing the individual, is called The Coaching Habit uh, by a gentleman named Michael Bungay Stanier. And a short book, fantastic book, um, and he sold a ton of them because 
it's so easy to consume, but it's such a lays out a great little uh, playbook, if you will, or framework for mm-hmm. how do you have a conversation with somebody that works for you to help them problem solve? Yes. Which is really what personal development is about. You know, you want to help people understand how they can solve their own problems and their own issues. Almost like a therapist, yes. Definitely. Tying back to that theme of problem solving. Mm-hmm. Good call back there. Yeah, it's funny. Um, like you said, we often see that people think when I need to be a coach, it's about individual opportunities. I'm going to role practice that meeting that you're going to have. Mm -hmm. But thinking about developing the person, that's going to impact all of their opportunities moving forward over time. And it's going to impact them in their next job. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're not at your company forever, you still, as a manager, um, what you should be focused on is developing your people into better professionals, um, more successful, happier, um, you know, better skills. um, And you're going to see better results than if you're just coaching them on one individual situation. Yeah. And I think that so one way to sort of look at it from a time allocation standpoint is perhaps if you're a manager is, is say you're going to spend 40% of your time on the management part, managing your process, your organization, building your capacity. You'll spend maybe 30% on coaching opportunities because you do want to win and bring business in. Spend 20% mentoring people, developing those individuals, and the final 10% is investing in education, which is really capability building for your entire organization. And I just think that's a, a fraction breakdown that people should keep in mind, 40, 30, 20, 10. And they should be investing 10% of their time, meaning their organization's time, in educating and improving the skill sets of their, their people, which is not happening. Definitely. All right. I think we could probably keep talking for hours and hours about yes, this, yes, but I, we're going to probably let you go. You've got a lunch to get to. So if you want people to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? So they come to the salesdesaleshouse.com and uh, should subscribe to our daily newsletter. Go to saleshouse.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, sign up there. Uh, you can also come to andypaul.com. Got more, more information there. And if you want to reach out to me, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's the usual preamble and then the sales house. Uh, or you can do the old-fashioned thing and just email me, <laughs> heaven forbid, at andy at com. You've got a nice, easy name. Um, Two first names, yeah. Yeah. My name is also relatively easy but long, so... Two four-letter names. It's yeah. super convenient. I'm a little jealous. Three there. syllables. Perfect. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Andy. And thank Elizabeth, you. Elizabeth, thank you very much. It's been fun. Yes. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening in future to this episode. Um, for everybody who's listening, you can find the notes for today's show, including links to all of these things we've been talking about and resources at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 157. Make sure to tune in next week when we're going to continue talking about problem solving in sales. In the meantime, stay tuned for this Friday's inspiration, where Natalia will be sharing a great quote from Joseph Sugarman. For the dedicated listeners who listen to every show and listen all the way to the end, we want to learn more about you. We've developed a survey that you can find at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod survey. It's super short, easy to take. And when you complete the survey, you will be entered into a drawing to receive a $50 Amazon gift card. So criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod survey. All month, we'll be writing about problem solving on the CFS blog. Check it out at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you find your shows. While you're there, leave us a rating or a review. This will help more people find the show and it lets us know what's working and where we can improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. 
Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!